Well, we're one week before Christmas, and uh, boy, did you enjoy that music this morning? Wasn't that wonderful? Yes, thank you so much. And, uh, and to our children, who are so special and precious and important to us, um, yesterday uh, we completed our Hampers of Hope. Um, Nancy, would you stand up, please? Nancy spearheads this whole thing and has for so many years. And where's Russell? Russell, Russell, come on, Russell. Don't give me, don't give me attitude. I, <laughs> no, no. Hey, I, would you, would you, would you please, everyone? I think this is so great. And uh, yesterday we had a, we had uh, just a little uh, presentation and and. Uh, refreshments for some of our regular uh, master's pantry people. Had a wonderful time. And if you were involved in any way in this, would you please just stand up? If you were involved in Hampers of Hope at all, please stand up quickly. Please. Come on, all of you. Um, Yes. Thank you so much. as I said, before I came here, I asked, I asked the leadership, tell me something about our church here. Tell me, you know, some good things. Just, and one of the things that kept coming back and back was Master's Pantry and Hampers of Hope and how we reach out to our community with the love of God. And so, um, obviously, we can't do that uh, without all of you, and God has been gracious to Grant us some corporate sponsors who've come alongside and, and, and so wonderfully supported this. And, and so I just want to say a big thank you to all of you uh, who have helped in so many different ways. Well, I was thinking of the question, what would you do for love? What would you do for love? Because people will do some really crazy things for love, right? Is it true? Um, it is true, and I did something crazy for love. In fact, we, my wife doesn't know what I'm going to say, but she's sitting there. You know, I have her full and undivided attention at this moment. We were married about somewhere between two and three years. Gerda made a passing comment uh, once, and she said... You might look good with a perm. She said that to me. I'm like, I'm not good enough the way I am. You need to know, my hair is like, it grows like a chia pet. Straight out of my head. And she said, you know, you might look good in a perm. And I, so, I love my wife. And I, you know, and I want to please my wife. And so I thought, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to, sometime when I know she's working, I'm going to make an appointment. And it, would you guys stop it? <laughs> uh, and I'm going to, I'm going to get a perm. And um, so I'm, I made the appointment and I went out and I went through all of the indignity of sitting in a salon with other ladies and having this, all these smelly chemicals in my hair. And I... <laughs> Oh, you guys. 
I want to see you in my office after service. And uh, I didn't know whether to get like a, a, you know, a tight curl or a relaxed curl or what. I just said, just give me a perm. And um, it was not a good idea, okay? It was, and in fact, when Gerda saw me, she was, <laughs> you know, she realized you need to be really careful what you say to a husband who loves you because, I, you know, it was a humiliation. I looked like the ugliest chick you've ever seen with a good mustache, okay? And, and I, I humiliated myself. Um, I, no, I could have brought a picture, but I decided this was humiliation enough. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, the things that we would do for love, I mean, I will never, ever, ever do that again. Um, we had, uh, we've been a few times uh, to minister in India. And the last time Gerda was with me, and we had the opportunity of, uh, of going up north and uh, going to Agra to see the Taj Mahal. Anybody ever seen the Taj Mahal? I mean, you've seen pictures of it, but I mean, it is breathtakingly beautiful. It, it's, just, it's just incredible. Um, the, this beautiful building, all made of white marble. Um, and, and if you show the next picture, when you see up close, though, there are all these carvings into the marble. Look at all these flowers. And you see the stuff? Let's show the next, the next slide, please. All of these, this little in- intricate stuff is actually inlaid into the marble. So it's carved out, and it, it's like you know, I don't know, five-eighths of an inch thick or something like that. And they've got it, it's inlaid with, um, uh, with, with uh, onyx and jade and lapis lazuli and turquoise. And, and, and the guide who was showing us around said, do you know, it's also carnelian. And I thought, well, that's in the Bible. That's in Revelation. That's part of uh, what God is going to do, in, in, you know, in, in terms of the new Jerusalem. And um, so, so we saw this absolutely beautiful and spectacular building. But there's a story behind this building. And uh, there was a young prince, and um, he was 15, and he saw a girl in the market who was 14, and she was selling these glass beads. And he thought she was just wonderful. And he said to his parents, I want to marry that girl. And in fact, five years later, when he was 19, uh, excuse me, four years later, when, when, when he was 19, he married uh, this girl, and, and he loved her so much. And um, in fact, this young prince became Shah Jahan uh, of, of the uh, uh, dynasty of emperors in Egypt, and he had a number of wives, but he particularly loved this wife. And he called her Mumtaz Mahal, which means um, the chosen one of the palace. He loved her above all others. And um, after the birth of her 14th child, 14th, she was sick and died. And... and um, he made a commitment to her there. He said, I won't marry anyone else, and I will build for you the richest, most beautiful tomb. 
That's what that building is. It's a tomb. And you can go in there and see where she is laid in that spectacular, huge building. And you can see another place where he was laid to rest beside his wife. Now, it's interesting that that, uh, they began work on that in 1632. It took 22 years to build and about 20,000 workers for 20 uh, two years to build that. And I got thinking to myself, man, people will do crazy things for love. Isn't that outstanding? I was thinking also of King George V in England. He died, and his son Edward would take over. Uh, he, would, he would be uh, crowned uh, Edward VIII in 1936. What an incredible privilege. A history of hundreds and hundreds of years of the monarchy. And and here is uh, Edward upon the throne as the reigning monarch of Great Britain with all of the splendor and all of the honor and all of the responsibility, not to mention all of the wealth that goes with that. And Edward became a part of this rich uh, tradition uh, in history of the monarchy and, uh, and all of the conventions that go along with, with that. Until he decided he wanted to marry a woman by the name of Wallace Simpson, who was an American socialite who had been twice divorced before. And uh, Parliament uh, said that uh, he could not be married to this woman. And as kind of the figurehead in the Church of England, as a divorced person, he would not be allowed to marry. And so he was confronted with a a really tough situation there. And uh, when he found out that he couldn't have that and this woman, he decided that he would abdicate the throne and everything that goes along with that, the status Um, His status was lost. Relationships were hurt. Uh, His brother who would take the throne was, uh, they were very unhappy about uh, all of what had happened. Um, He lost money. He lost his fortune. It was given a little stipend uh, that he would have. Uh, And he was not welcome at many kind of gatherings of the family and and certain other functions. He was banished abroad, but he was resolute. He loved Wallace Simpson, and he would give up everything, all of that, for Wallace Simpson. Man, people do crazy things for love. Now, we're in the season of Advent. In fact, this is the last Sunday of Advent. Our next event is Christmas Eve, this next Saturday night, and then Christmas Day, as you heard. And uh, we've been going through the, uh, the themes of Advent, hope and peace and joy. And today, the final theme of Advent is love, love. You know, when you look through the Bible, you'll see that there are actually several places uh, that um, several places that give the Christmas story. In fact, in a certain sense, some of them are very cryptic. In, 
in, in Genesis chapter 3, there's something of the, Chris, the Christmas story that the, the seed of the woman would come and make things right. And all through the Bible, we see prophecies and little hints and, and, uh, and different uh, uh, accounts that tell us about the coming of Christmas. In the Gospels, in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, Matthew and Luke are the only ones that kind of give us the story of the birth of Jesus and, and his coming. Mark starts with the begin, beginning of Jesus' ministry John, with John the Baptist. And uh, John, he tells the Christmas story kind of in his own way, um, different than any of the others do. In fact, I want to turn your attention to the passage that Carol read for us earlier in uh, John chapter 1. Uh, I invite you to take out your Bible. If you don't have your Bible with you, I want to encourage you to take the Bible out in the seat back in front of you. And if you turn to page 886, you'll find John 1. And uh, this is kind of John's account of the Christmas story, only he starts at a different place than anyone else does. In fact, in, uh, that's page 886, the very first words of John's gospel is, in the beginning, and if you've read the Bible much at all, that should sound maybe a little bit familiar to you. In the beginning, in the beginning. I know, that's the start of Holy Scripture. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And he goes on to say, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God said, and there was. And God said, and and we have the creation account. And here we see, you know, we understand from that 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 God has this, this incredible powerful word that accomplished creation. It revealed his will. It brought salvation. The very word of God brought salvation. And as we read this, we read, in the beginning was the word. The word. This is kind of cryptic. What is he talking about? And he begins to talk, in the beginning was the Word, and that is, in the beginning of creation, the Word was already existing. And the Word was with God. That's kind of strange. And the Word was God. Now, wait a minute here. We, we've, got, we've got God, we've got the Word, and the Word is distinct from God, and He's with God, but... He's also God. Now this is getting confusing. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not not anything made that was made. This Word created everything that we see, so that nothing that exists exists outside of His creative power. And he would go on to say, in in him was life. The whole principle of life was in him. Eternal life was in this word. 
That life was the light of men. And that light that, that uh, would shine in darkness. That light that was illumination and enlightenment and revealing to us. Shines in the darkness. Shines in evil. The word was light. And I don't know about you, but it's kind of like, what's going on here? What is this? Until we actually get down to verse 14, and then we get a clue. And the word became flesh. The word became human and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He says, we have seen him. This, this word that in, before creation was with God and was God and created everything and was life and was light actually came as a human being to earth. And all of a sudden, it's Jesus it's Jesus who he calls the world the word that powerful expression of the person of God and, and and this language would be understood in bible days by Jews and by Gentiles they would understand something of what this means and and here it is that God the son came to earth and took upon him our flesh he became a human being he became um, he became one of us and we realize that he made this humble entrance into our world, as we heard this morning, you know, to a manger, as a pauper, as, as, as a peasant, uh, no home of his own. Uh, he would relinquish the majesty and the splendor of his existence in heaven as the object of the worship of angels night and day. He would give that all up and enter our world of time and space and become one of us. And he became and came as a helpless baby needing a human mother to protect him and care for him and nurture him and feed him and clean him and a father figure that would oversee the the protection and provision for this family. I mean, it's incomprehensible. Looking into, into a, a, a cow stall and, and seeing a manger and a baby in there who is God and who created everything that we see. Incomprehensible. And it says... In verse 14, the word became flesh and he dwelt among us. The, the literal rendering of that was, is this. He pitched his tent among us. And right away, Jewish people would go, oh, wow, wow. I remember back in the days of, the, uh, of, uh, of being in the wilderness. And God instructed them to, to fashion this place of worship. As a tent. I mean there was a big area. And then there was a smaller area. Uh, where 
certain objects of worship were and certain things were prescribed. And then there was a smaller place yet, 15 by 15 tent. And in that place would be uh, the Ark of the Covenant, this chest with two angels carved on the top and all overlaid in gold. And that was to represent the presence of God among his people in a tent while their tents were all uh, surrounding this tent. God, in that sense, was pitched his tent with them, but God went so much further with Jesus Christ, and Jesus came, and he pitched his tent among us. Here he was, God, living among us, and he says, we've seen his glory. When we watched Jesus, we saw something of the beauty and majesty. We saw the miraculous signs that he did. We saw his goodness. We saw his holiness. He was full of grace and truth. So that when we go down to verse 18, he says this, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. That's the word. That's Jesus. No one had ever seen God. He said, ah, didn't Moses see God? They said Moses spoke face to face with God. Moses said to God, I want to see your glory, Lord. Show me your glory. And uh, God said, okay, but here's how it's got to be. You can't see me. I'm going to put you in, in a little place in a rock. And I'm going to cover over that place. And I'm going to go by the front of that. And after I've gone by, he says, I'll take my hand off. And all you'll see is some of the trailing glory of the presence of God that had passed by. I mean, it it, it was such an experience that Moses came down and his face shone like he was radioactive. And people didn't want to go near him. Nobody's ever seen God. But God, the one and only, the Word, Jesus, has come to show us God. Absolutely incredible. You know, one of the disciples, Philip, said in that time when Jesus spent some time just before he was going to the cross with his disciples, um, Philip says to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and that'll be good enough for us. And Jesus goes, Philip, you don't get it. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Imagine Here comes God as a baby. He grows up. He's under the care of of human parents. He grows up, and we watch him. We listen to his teaching. We watch the miracles he does. We see the attitude he has. We see the love and the compassion, the grace. We hear the call for judgment and all the rest of it. And he says, you have seen God. And that's what Christmas is about. Christmas is God the Son came to earth and took upon himself our humanity. That's the miracle of Christmas. He entered our world. He entered our world to show us what God was like so that we could see God up close, that he would live among us. We could touch him and see him and listen to him. He was truly Emmanuel, God with us. But not only do we have a God who revealed himself to us in that way, but we have a God who assures us 
that whatever we're going through, whatever struggle we have, whatever trials we have, whatever burdens we have to bear, he understands something about that because he walked in our shoes. He understands us. He understands our pain and our frustration, our stresses, our temptations, our our rejections, even our death. He's been there. He's done it. And when we feel like we don't understand and we're shaking our fist in the face of God saying, why, what have you done to me? You don't understand my life. You don't understand what I'm going through. He says, oh, no, you don't understand. You don't understand. I've walked in your shoes. He's experienced it all. He knows what we go through. You know, there was a story told of a king that that, that really struggled to know how to lead his people. And, and uh, contrary to the, the position of his counselors, he would put on the clothes of a peasant and would go among the marketplace and talk to people and interact with them. He said, how can I lead my people unless I know what they go through? And he did that. That's what God did. He became one of us. He walked among us. He experienced what we experienced. He understands what you're going through. Which brings me back to my question. Why would anybody do something like that? May I answer for you because we have sinned. And in sinning and rebelling against God, our relationship with him was broken. That we came under judgment and condemnation of him. And that the penalty for our rebellion was eternal separation from God. Eternal damnation and death. And yet God was unwilling to write us off. He was unwilling to to let us go and get what we deserved. And so he formulated a plan. It was a plan to save us. A plan to reconcile us to himself. But doing that was going to be costly. Because for God to maintain his righteous standards and his justice, a penalty must be exacted. And the only way that he could save us is to have a human being. Somebody who was one of us to be able to step in and live an absolutely perfect life that complied with everything that God wanted for us, but someone who would be willing to give their life to die for us. And someone who was not only a human who could take our place, but someone who could provide for us an eternal, infinite sacrifice. Someone who is both God and fully man, fully God, and fully man, that he could come to take our place. The apostle Peter put it this way in 1 Peter 3. He said this, for Christ also suffered for sins, once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He took our punishment. He suffered in our place so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be accepted. Why would he do that? 
Why would he leave heaven? Why would he leave the expression of the power that he had there, which he divested himself of when he came to earth, and the glory and the worship? Why would he limit himself to time and space in his existence with us? Why would he divest himself of the glory that he had there? Why would he assume the human frailty that we had so that he would know what it is to be exhausted after the press of the crowd day and night? Uh, That he would understand what it is to be subject to ridicule and abuse and rejection and mockery and betrayal and torture of the most extreme kind in death. Why would he do all of that? Can I say to you it was for love? It was for love. What God would do for love was to give his son as a sacrifice. What God would do for love was to have Jesus, the son of God, come and take our place. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. He so loved the world That whoever would believe in him would not perish, but would have eternal life. What would God do for love? That's what God would do for love. Christmas is about God's love for us. It's an over-the-top love. It's a crazy love. It's something that you wouldn't imagine the extent of that love. That's what would cause him to do that. And that love is incomprehensible. The Apostle Paul was trying to make sense of that in Romans chapter 5. He said this, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless... Paul, what, are we, what do you mean we're powerless? We're powerless to change our, our position. We're powerless to save ourselves. We're powerless to change our destiny. When we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly... Very rarely would anyone die for a righteous person. I mean, think of somebody who's just, everything they do is just so right. I mean, they may be, they may be just annoying they're so right. They're always right. Maybe a little bit cold, but nope, this is, this is right and this is wrong and I always do. You know, would anybody dare to die for a righteous person? Probably not likely You know, what about a good person? I mean, just that warm-hearted person that is always helping others, doing things for others. Well, maybe someone might possibly dare to die for somebody like that. But what about God? But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, while we were in active rebellion, Christ died died for us. He showed his love to us in this way. When we were sinners in rebellion, rejecting, when we messed up our life, when we turned our back on God, when we had nothing to do with God, we didn't want, we would not surrender to him, God gave his best. Your love can cause you to do things that are extreme at times. We measure that love in terms of its costliness, the costliness of the gift, what it costs us to give. 
And when we think about God, and when we think about the Lord Jesus Christ, he gave the most precious thing that he could give, his own son. Jesus gave himself in totality. And we measure love by the costliness of the gift, but we also measure uh, that love by the worthiness or the lack of worthiness of the recipient. And here we are, sinners, the rebels. Paul would tell us a few verses later, we were enemies of God. He says, those are the people that God gave that costly love to. Those are the people he favored. I want you to see Jesus hanging on a cross. He has just been brutalized. He's hanging on a cross in agony, dying. Drop of blood by drop of blood. And he was, he was chided. Hey, why don't you come down from there? Hey, Mr. Miracle Worker, if you're so great, why don't you come down off that cross? I'll tell you why. Because I love you. And then what did he say? He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't realize what they're doing. That's love. That's love. You know, all of us want to be loved. All of us need love. All of us want to feel special to somebody, to to feel prized and loved and and cared for. And to varying degrees, we may or may not feel that or sense that. And you find that a lot of things that we do in life, we do because we want to be loved. You know, if I do this for you, maybe you'll love me more, or you'll love me, or if if I try and be this kind of person, maybe you'll love me. And a lot of what motivates us is we want somebody to love us. And I want to tell you, if you're in need of love, that almighty God, the creator of the universe, Jesus Christ, who sustains the universe, loved you so much that even though you didn't care a whit for him, even though you went your own way, and even though you rejected him, and maybe you're still rejecting him, he loved you that much that he gave it all. Man, do you need to be loved? Can I tell you there's a God who loves you? There's a God who wants you to know how much he loves you, and he's walked in your shoes, and he's felt your pain, and he's, he, he's been through, and that God will love you even though you're broken, and even though you're sinful, and even though you're messed up, and even though you've been rejecting him, and walking away from him, and, and he's reached out to you time after time again, nah, I, I don't, no, nah, I don't need that, I don't want that. He still loves you, and he reaches out in love, and invites you to come to him. He so loved that he gave. And he came at Christmas and he died at Easter and he rose again the third day. And I want to tell you, you are loved. You are loved by your Creator. You are loved by God the Father and God the Son. And you are blessed. I think one of the saddest, most tragic things for me is this. It's unrequited love. 
It's when somebody loves and loves and loves, but never receives that love in return. I think of God the Father who who went to the extreme to provide for what he provided for our salvation in our messed up lives. And, And he did all of that. And he puts people in our path who tell us how much God loves us, people who care for us, who share with us that good message. And we turn our noses up and we go, not for me, thanks. Thanks just the same, but no thanks. How sad is the greatest act of love that isn't responded to? We brush it off and blow it off like, nah, that's nothing. I'm not interested in that. I don't need that intrusion into my life. To me, that is so sad. Because in John, he says this, he came to his own, and his own people didn't receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And God is reaching out to us with a gift, a gift of love in his son, a gift of forgiveness, a gift of inclusion in his family, a gift of a turnaround in a person's life, a transformation of their life. That ought to blow us away. In fact, it did. In 1 John, John says this, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. Oh, man. So incredible. That's why the Apostle Paul, when he thought about God's love, he he said this in Ephesians chapter 3. He says, I have a prayer request for you guys. I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. He says, here's my prayer request for you guys. I pray that you would understand something of the magnitude of God's love for you because if you understand that, it will transform your life. When you know that he loves you that much, that is transformative in your life. And I need to ask you a question. Have you received that love? That God who loves you so much that he gave that much for you, have you received that? Or have you blown it off and said, yeah, you know, not for me. Yeah, thanks, but no thanks. To me, that's the greatest tragedy. Unrequited love from the God who created you who invites you to come to him. And you say, well, what do I do? You need to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ to acknowledge that you've blown it. You've offended this holy, awesome God, but he loved you in spite of that. And, and he invites you to come and confess that you have blown it. 
and that you're putting your trust and your faith in what Jesus did for you when he died for you and he rose again for you, that he would cover your sin, that he would pay the penalty for your sin and uh, he would forgive you and he would accept you. And if you haven't done that, you can tell him what I've just said in prayer, in the quietness of your own heart. And this may be the day that you step into his family, that you step into his light. You step into his kingdom. You become one of his people. And if you've done that, would you come and tell me after the service? I would love to know that. And, and, and maybe, maybe you're, you're just... Um, Maybe you still have questions. You've been thinking about some of this stuff, about God's love. I want you to know there's some people who would pray with you up here after the service, and, and, um, and uh, any of us would be happy to talk to you, or you can call us and make an appointment. You know what the neat thing is this? The Apostle Paul said in Romans 5 that the love of God has been poured out into our hearts just poured out and overflowing. And here's the thing that that God wanted for us. God wanted us as his people to be put on display to show what love really looks like, what it looks like to be one of the people of God, what it looks like to have your life transformed. I couldn't help but but, but seeing all these dear people at uh, at our hampers party yesterday and just seeing you as God's people, giving and sacrificing and helping and loving and caring, that we would pour out our love in our community, that people would see the love of God mediated through our hands and our feet and our lips. And, and uh, here's what Jesus said. He said this. Um, he said, by this will all people know that you're my followers, you're my disciples, by this the love you have for one another. He said, I want to I have it so that when people come into your assembly, when people come in and see you, and they see the way you love each other and care for each other, they're going, whoa, haven't seen that. Boy, those people are incredible. And he wants to put us on display in the world so the world might know how incredible he is. And they may come to realize his love personally in their life. Hey, people of God, that's the onus on us from our Father. As children of love, that we show that love abroad. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much that you change situations not by power structures, not by coercion, not by governments, but Jesus came as a radical to change this world by loving not setting up, an, not, not setting up some, some uh, uh, group of people that are, are to administer something, but just people loving and sharing with others. Father, I just pray that you would, as you poured your love into our hearts, it would overflow to others. And I pray, Father, that if somebody needs your love, They need to understand how much they are loved by you, that you'll make yourself known to them in a very special and wonderful way. In Christ's name, amen.
children are outside.